the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, and we have some ground to cover today, some ground to cover, some breaking news uh, as uh, we're watching it in real time. It looks like uh, Congressman Comer of Kentucky, who heads up the Oversight Committee of the House, as well as Chuck Grassley of the Senate, who uh, heads up a senior member of the Judiciary Committee, which has oversight um, uh, focus, at least he's in the minority over there in the Senate, have uh, released a letter that they sent uh, to Joe Biden saying, hey, uh, we know there was an investigation while you were vice president into corruption. Uh, we want more documents. Actually, it didn't go to Biden. It went to the Department of Justice. So everyone's going crazy. Wow, this could be a big deal. Could be a big deal. We'll see. We'll see. Um, I mean, at this point, as much as we know, that's publicly known about what happened in terms of Hunter Biden and his conduct and all, it's um, pretty clear that you're not really likely to be held accountable if you're Joe Biden. It looks like he's going to get away with it all. So, I I mean, I hope he doesn't, and I hope they get to the bottom of it. And I think it's a a drain-the-swamp moment. If I can tell you again, remind you, uh, uh, Donald Trump did an interview in, I think, November of 2016, just a few weeks after the election. might have been December. And he was being interviewed about his um, drain-the-swamp rhetoric and his drain-the-swamp plan which he had released in the in the stretch run of the campaign in 2016. And the political article was uh, criticizing the fact that some of Trump's transition officials were also preparing to be lobbyists or something. And uh, Trump said uh, forcefully he was surprised by the power of drain the swamp as a phrase. He had used it. And it sort of jumped. He said people really jumped at it. And suddenly it was something that was powerful. And he said, I, I didn't see that coming. Now, he's a guy that knows words and knows phrases and knows how to use them. So that's kind of what was always it's always struck with me. Drain the swamp. And when you look at Joe Biden, don't you just think swamp? His brother is a multimillionaire. His sister is a multimillionaire. I think his other brother is a multimillionaire. His son is a millionaire over 10 times over a billion times over. I don't know. It's that wrong. But talk about the swamp. But I'm not sure it means that he's going to be held accountable right now. I just don't think I don't think I believe it. And what you need to know is the biggest story in America that is starting to break through is the dramatic change in immigration laws that's taking place and the lawlessness at the border. You know, we had Todd Benzman on the other day. He talked about the shooting down in the area a couple hours from Austin. That's called Cleveland, Texas. Uh, 50,000 more or more illegals and and illegal migrants that are flooded in there. They have a different set of laws, a different set of values. Now we have even uh, even Senator Graham, who's not particularly conservative on a number of issues, uh, went on TV and warned that there's illegal immigrants that are surging as to Title 42. Todd Benzman, toddbenzman.com, has video down on the border of him down there of what's happening. So it is a a wild, wild uh, 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 moment at our border. And what you need to know is that's the number one threat. And here's why. 
I was able to articulate it better than I had in a long time this morning on a, a radio interview. I did a radio interview on Wednesday morning. I, I do a regular appearance on a, a Champaign Urbana, an Illinois a radio station, the ESPN affiliate there. They do a morning talk show and uh, uh, talk, uh, yeah, talk station in the morning. It's talk um, and news and policy and politics and all. And what um, I said there was this. 100, 120 years ago, when we were uh, bringing in lots of immigrants, and there were lots of numbers through Ellis Island mostly, um, they assimilated quickly because certain fundamentals were in place in America at that time that are not there now. For example, there was no government safety net. There was no government safety net at all in the sense that there wasn't Social Security, there wasn't a disability, there wasn't welfare. The safety net was not government run. It was church-based, synagogue-based, neighborhood-based, family-based. And so you had to, 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 to slide into the places, you know, you go through Ellis Island and you, you, you know, catch a, you catch a, um, I guess you would catch a, uh, a train, uh, uh, I'm not a train, my gosh, you didn't catch a train, you would, well, you might catch a train, I guess, depending on the year, but you'd get, get down to Baltimore or, or go up to Boston or move into New York in one of the neighborhoods or whatever it was. Okay. So that's what happened. And you get became assimilated, rapidly assimilated in a nation, a nation, not just a state, a nation that had shared values, belief in God, generally Judeo-Christian, but certainly a belief in God, a belief in God playing a heavy role, a serious role in the community, a belief in families, a belief in extended families, a belief in faith communities supporting each other in all sorts of ways, a, a, a belief in work, that you would get to work, that there wouldn't be welfare. There wouldn't be a handout for long because you were probably taking it from the pastor, Father McGillicuddy, or you were taking it from Uncle Tom. So you got to work. 120 years later, we are flooding the nation with people that don't appear. And by the way, I'm talking mostly about the last couple of years, the millions that Biden's let through that were and we're seeing the development of Cleveland, Texas. And, and, and we're seeing more and more developments where people and, and they may even want to assimilate. They may say America's great, but here's the problem. We went from a country, a nation, 120 years ago, that celebrated our unique and blessed role to a nation that denigrates our history, denigrates our people, doesn't have faith in God, doesn't honor faith in God. In fact, is now a fully, the religion is fully secular and secular in every way. So you don't assimilate in America by becoming part of the communities of the shared values. And so what we're doing is introducing into our country new other countries, new other communities. Uh, let me be clear. I'm not saying they're bad communities. I'm saying they're not American. The communities, the values, and more importantly, I hate to say this, maybe America and Americans aren't American enough anymore. So we can't ask people to become assimilated when our public schools have become such a mess. We can't ask people to come assimil become assimilated to America when instead of having a community-based safety net, churches, families, generosity, the Salvation Army, etc., the Red Cross, we have a government-based one where it's kind of demanded. I demand things from the government. So... We've changed ourselves, our ourselves, our nation has changed, and therefore we're not bringing in people to assimilate. Again, to be clear, 
I don't blame the people coming here. It's a better place to be than a lot of most other places. But I do say if we're bringing them here and they're not assimilating into the American culture, the American nation, it's not going to turn out well. And what they're doing, they're they're not they're avoiding choosing the secular, hollow America. If they can help it, they they stay in communities of their own. But the problem is they can't stay there for long because our public schools are so bad. They can't stay there for long because our government gives such handouts. The dependence and the dominance of those institutions, the government with handouts and management and all that, and the, and the government schools ends up dominating the people. So it's, it is disturbing. Uh, it is problematic, but it is also dramatic. The border, what you need to know is the problems at the border won't stay at the border for long. The problems at the border are not limited to some the lawlessness. That's, the lawlessness is insulting. It's devastating. It includes drugs and sex trafficking and all that stuff. But it's also a, a way to change the nation. And and I don't I don't I don't presume to argue that it's a replacement you know the replacement theory any of those things. All I'm saying is the American experience, the assimilation. It was colorblind. You could be you could be darker in 120 years ago from uh, southern parts of Italy that are uh, you know African. Look, you could be from Africa. You could be from uh, Haiti. You could be from wherever, or you could be Irish, or you could be Scandinavian. But you are going to come to a country that wanted to assimilate you into a nation that they recognized and loved as Judeo-Christian, celebratory, celebrating its roots based on the rule of law and the fundamental ethic of honesty and a deal is a deal, etc. And now you just have uh, you have a culture that wants to say power is king. Power is king. Power is whoever has power, just use it against the others. And who wants to drive an, a wedge in our country? That's what's happening to the ruling class. That's what the ruling class is doing to us. So what you need to know is it's a bigger problem than we ever thought, this immigration question. Bigger than we ever, ever thought. And it's going to be profoundly obvious in just a few weeks how bad it is. And it's going to get worse. That's what you need to know. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. We'll take a break and be right back. Ed Martin, Pro-America Report. Don't forget, ProAmericaReport.com. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, I don't know. He can correct me when I say it wrong. A couple months ago, two, three months ago, uh, we had as a guest on the program, Matt Lamb. He's an associate editor over at the College Fix, thecollegefix.com, thecollegefix.com. Uh, the, the tagline beneath it, uh, Matt, I like the best on the website. It's the College Fix, breaking campus news, launching re- media careers. So we're here to help. Uh, so Matt Lamb, associate editor. So, um, the <laughs> I love this because to me it's this is halfway between the Babylon Bee, which means it may, you laugh out loud when you see the headline, but also taking the insanity of the left to the logical extreme. I'm reminded of this guy the last w- few days who, um, you know, said, well, if we're supposed to be so into diversity, I'm going to identify as I think he said an African-American woman. And everybody said, you can't do it. He said, that's what you guys said the rules are. So here we are. Joe Biden has said, hey, uh, they want all books available to students 
And so uh, you had an idea for the DC library. Walk us through this, Matt, please. So this actually goes back to September 2022 when uh, First Lady Dr. Jill Biden said that all books belong in libraries. This was around the time that there was the debate over Florida's law uh, limiting uh, sexual instruction to kids up to third grade. There was other states and, and localities that were trying to place reasonable limits on what books kids were accessing in uh, public libraries and in school libraries, public school libraries, right? Right. So I had the idea to ask the D.C. public library if they could buy a book by Tara Reid, <laughs> yeah. former Senate aide to Joe Biden, and right. accused her allegedly, of course, these are still allegations, that he sexually assaulted her, sexually harassed her, right. acted inappropriately. Um, I think there's plenty of public evidence he has done sexual harassment or acted inappropriately to other people. Um, and so actually, uh, the DC library got back to me recently, which was around the time that Joe Biden said that all, uh, that all books, pretty much the same thing his wife said should be available right. to students. He, he gave these comments at like a teacher's educators conference. And so now anyone can go read this book by Tara Reed, uh, once, once the book comes into the DC library. Matt Lamb is our guest. Matt, let me let me go a different way with this for one second. The insanity. Um, uh, first of all, it's 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 interesting to me that they. Let me. I'll start. Let me, let me go start with. I should respond to what you just said. It's interesting that they actually did it, right? I mean, it's um. I'm I'm not, I'm not impressed because that's what they're supposed to do. But it's you know, I, if you'd gotten a runaround, that would have been really obvious, right? So maybe they don't mind to have to uh, you know bother giving you the runaround, right? Absolutely. Uh, someone in the comments on our page suggested, well, maybe they'll they'll buy it and then they'll just put it up for sale for like a quarter, two months later right. at the, uh, you know, the Friends of the Library sale. I'm actually going to be in D.C. at the end of June. So I'm planning <laughs> to try to find this book. Right. And so right. maybe there'll be a further update from there. But uh, I'm glad we were able to get this book purchased be to make the broader. Of course, I'm making sort of a funny point that yes, really all books don't need to be available. We can we can actually draw limits as a community on on what at least kids should be able to access in a public library with taxpayer funds. Well, and that's that, that's the, that that's the number one thing. And and again, uh, you know, we're, we're talking with uh, Matt Lamb, uh, thecollegefix.com. And one of the aspects of the college fix is covering uh, lots of things that happen on college campuses. More more importantly, these are young journalists, and and they're active. And so, um, to to you know, as you point out, there there's. It's one thing to say adults can do stupid stuff, read stupid things, read bad literature. It's another thing to make it accessible to kids. And, you know, the 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 only thing that I regret about this is that had you had a uh, Matt uh, had a back and forth, you would have been able to say, OK, where, where do you guys want to draw the line? Right. I mean, are you are you going to excoriate people for reading Mein Kampf? Which, you know, every I think it's on the reading list at lots of universities. But if you if you happen to have read it or if you have a copy, Matt, they're going to make you sound like, you know, you're you're a fan. You started a fan club. But what's the limits? Right. And what's the limits? And, they, they, you know, there's a there's this this sensibility on the left, I think, that they want no limits on everything. And, you know, you go, let's go right to pornography. Do you want limits on pornography for kids? Well, it's obviously. But do you want limits on pornography being made with kids? Which is, you know, not, I'm not talking about five-year-olds. I'm talking about 16, 17-year-old girls who are exploited. Well, you know, these, these no limits is something. But, Matt, this is all really motivated by it's a DeSantis argument, right? They're trying to aim this at conservative governors and conservative school boards, right? 
Exactly. And I will point out that actually the federal government does put limits on what can be published. For one, Elizabeth Warren actually tried to get Amazon to pull uh, several books. I, I think they were critical of uh, COVID shots or something like that. Oh, right. And also, right. speaking Sorry. of DeSantis, uh, he showed some of the books that they were limiting access to. And the local TV stations, I believe because they were fearing a uh, Federal <laughs> Communications Commission fine, <laughs> Cut the feet. And <laughs> and I'll note that the Department of Defense, if you're, let's say, like a CIA agent or you are a military officer at high ranking, you go to write a book, the Department of Defense or some other related agency or entity of it generally has to actually review your books to make sure you're not uh, spilling state secrets or putting people's lives at risk. So I think we can have limits for seven-year-olds seeing books like right. Gender Queer if right. we can put limits on adults, uh, you know, writing things that might harm national security or exposing people to these things on on television. Yeah, I mean, the the, the only problem, Matt, and again, you know, uh, we're talking with Matt Lamb, associate editor at the College Fix, is who, who gets to decide, right? I mean, that's the that's the bigger who who's the one that gets to say what's in or out. And, and there there I fear conservatives. Uh, that's a siren song, as they say, to say, well, therefore, let everything, you know, rain free because we can all distinguish it. Well, not exactly. Right. But because I think it's a little it's a trick. Right. But that is the problem. You know, what is government going to be the one that tells you that, um, you know, that that you shouldn't be allowed to read X or Y because it's national security as opposed to, um, you know, something that informs the public in a way that is unflattering of the government. I mean, this is one of the problems uh, I hope you'll agree, but I don't know. You can tell me with our distrust of government. I mean, we've gone so far, whereas you, you just point as a perfect one on COVID. Y- y- there was a period where you, you know, they were threatening to, they were taking down personalities. They were taking down web pages over, dis- you know, disagreements over COVID, uh, not even vaccine, but treatments. And now we find most of what they were saying, they were either guessing or they were lying. Right. And so this is why when we talk about uh, books in libraries, it's good to push it down to the local community and let those people make decisions. And I'll just say from a conservative point of view, the pornography is already in the library. So I don't really see how it could get much worse if we have a review process. Uh, The librarians are mostly liberal anyways. So I would guess there's already not a ton of Donald Trump books or free market (laughs) capitalism books. My inclination is, for example, my own library, if I went and looked for Catholic books, they would be from more dissident Catholics, pro-LGBT Catholics. You're not exactly going to find more conservative content. So conservatives are already kind of losing the libraries. I really don't think we have much to lose. If at a local level with a local school board or a local library, there's a way we can talk about it because really all books can't fit on the shelves. Every library has to make a decision about what's going to be on the shelves and what's not. And I think conservatives just want more of a say on on what's on those shelves. Yeah, you know that's a, that's a, that's an excellent point. And in the uh, I was going to tell you off the air as we started. Again, we're talking Matt Lamb, thecollegefix.com. dot um, You know, I I live in a, a county that has a very good and vibrant public library, and it, I have to say it's fantastic for my family because I can see a book and I can say I'll go look and see if that's in the library. And if I if I want to get it, if they have it, I put a request in. They deliver it to the local uh, uh, the you know the library that's in my town uh, branch, and uh, they send me an email saying pick it up. The more more interesting question is going to be: Are we going to have public libraries? More and more, we are that have books and uh, and pro- uh, content. Uh, 
um, that you can access, therefore, without having to pay, right? So you can watch a movie or listen to a book or read a book on on uh, on um, um, Kindle or whatever. And the uh, the cost uh, of that goes down. You know, again, to your point, having local control over what's in there is the key because y- y- you may not want to have your public library have all this content that's going to be created, but you may not have the time to to view it. I mean, it's it's it, we're almost we're at the front end of a content uh, if we're not already in the middle of a tsunami, and managing that, I think, as you point out, is best local. Absolutely, and that's a great you know that's a great point. Do libraries have to have a Disney Plus you know public subscription or Netflix? Absolutely not. And my library is also, you know, generally great. I can get lots of content. They have lots of things online. I can access New York Times, Wall Street Journal, things that are great for me as a journalist. Right. And so exactly, they're going to have to make decisions about what streaming services, what video games, what movies. It's a whole nother debate. Should libraries stick to books or not? But those decisions are already made. I mean, every government agency has to ultimately make a decision about where to spend taxpayer money and i think taxpayers should have a say on where that goes yeah well it's good it's a great a, a good coverage and uh, and i appreciate the college fix uh, and for lots of reasons but especially this one matt lamb thank you associate editor associate editor over at uh the uh, college fix the college com is their website uh there's a lot there to check out and um you, i will post this up on social media thanks very much Thanks for having me. All right. We will take a break and come back, and I'll put that up on uh, social media and also link to uh, Matt uh, Lamb. Uh, We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. It's... um, it's kind of a fun thing when it happens. Uh, my next guest is VJ J. Raj. Uh, here we go. J.R. Raj. He'll, he'll correct me. But I had him on the program, as my listeners know, I don't know, a month or two ago. Then he was in uh, uh, the area, and I went and had uh, uh, lunch with him and visited more and got to know him. So wonderful guy. He's a research associate over at the CO2 Coalition. Our friend Gregory Wrightstone is the executive director over there. CO2Coalition.org is their website. And uh, as such, uh, he does a whole bunch of different writing and speaking. He's got a great lecture from the Heartland uh, Institute conference. It's very good. Um, to your credit, VJ, it's not too long. My old boss, Phyllis Schlafly, used to say, you know, you don't need to say it in an hour and a half. You can say it in 20 to 30 minutes. And uh, so it's a good speech. And he's got a PC. Of course, he's the research associate at the CO2 Coalitions as an advanced degree in environmental sciences from the University of East Anglia and resides in India. So this piece over townhall.com, it's called Technology and an Optimal Climate are Feeding the World. So, VJ, first of all, your your speech at the Heartland Institute, I, I, I correct me if I'm saying the wrong host, but I think that's right. Um, it used the phrase, I think, uh, climate imper- uh, climate colonialism. Is that the phrase or climate imperialism? I thought that was very powerful for uh, uh, an Indian to talk about how other uh, uh, nations are, are, you know, kind of um, handling these issues. Can you talk about that for a moment? Yes, it. Uh, so uh, the phrases are interchangeable. So you can use either the term colonialism or imperialism. Yep. So essentially, what it means is that f- 
foreign policies made in Europe and North America are being imposed on developing countries and third world nations uh, where the demand for energy is quite high and the nature of energy that's required there uh, can only come from fossil fuels. So what we are talking about is uh, a foreign policy impeding the growth of these countries. And in a way, it resembles the uh, late colonial era where a, fo- a foreign policy dictated how people could live in a certain country. So this is nothing to do with the new wave of uh, talk on colonial past and so on. So, but rather it is a real and new form of colonialism, wherein policies originating from UN, especially like right. uh, the net zero and so on, right. uh, is is uh, disrupting the development of uh, economies in the third world. Yeah. Well, and and again, uh, uh, VJ, do it for me. Teach me again on how to say your last name. J J J R J. J- Jayaraj. Jayaraj? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I it's, thought it's, I knew I had uh, a Jayaraj. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. But but so but let me say that a little more pointedly too. Um in your speech you said, look, we're in this nation India, uh, we're developing, we've got a lot of challenges and people that aren't from here that don't really know not only the culture but don't know the the economies are, are telling us how it's going to work. It's either really ignorant or it's really um, taking advantage and, and for the advantage of the other country. I mean, that, there's a point where the colonial phrase is helpful because while you can say at certain periods in history, colonial um, governance was beneficial to everybody, there became a point where it was clear that one group of people was dominating another group of people for their advantage. And I think that's powerful when it comes to, you know, I've said before, Greta Thunberg is has caused more uh, death and destruction than maybe any other person because of how she uh, forces people to react to her myth. And um, so I think it's very helpful. But let me get back to your piece. Uh, it's over at townhall.com, which is our sister website from the program here. Um, Technology and an optimal climate are feeding the world. I thought we were both um, going to have food shortages and that there's too many people. Well, <laughs> tell me how the, the experts have got it wrong. Yeah, I mean, uh, they've got it wrong because they most of the so-called experts uh, who dominate the policy sphere uh, in national governments and in international political organizations and in the mainstream media are, uh, I would say, narrow-minded. And they, they are part of the climate alarmist uh, contingency uh, where where they want to believe that we are in a climate crisis and anything that opposes that point of view is uh, strictly negated or uh, put down. And that, that is why they find it hard uh, to tell people uh, what has happened in our past, uh, past two centuries and five centuries. And that's why many people do not know what has happened. Uh, yes, there are news articles that talk about what happened a while back, but many people do not know this because they are caught up in this, uh, you know, mass movement of climate uh, crisis uh, that they 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 have been conditioned uh, to believe that uh, we are in a phase where we are we are at the point of losing our our food production and crops because of climate change. So what really happened is 
is that when the world came out of a little ice age um, that was uh, global in nature uh, around the 16th century where the temperatures dropped and especially the northern hemisphere was impacted severely most of the plants and food crops uh, died and you know uh, it's well recorded and coming out of that beginning from the 17th century there was warmth and uh, this was famously known as a climate optima in a sense it was the optimum condition for our plants to grow and uh, as as nasa says um, the earth greened primarily because of this change in temperature and uh, uh, fortunately these plants also uh, encountered an increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide levels uh, which was further aided by the industrial era where uh, contrary to the popular belief uh, carbon dioxide is 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 an elixir of life it is a plant food so both the temperature increase and the carbon dioxide increase actually has helped the earth to green if you are talking about a real green movement there should that would be a movement that is thankful to both the temperature increase and the carbon dioxide now that might sound crazy uh, but if you if you are a farmer or if you are a scientist who's looking at the past 5 centuries of changes in temperature and vegetation uh, this this would be a statement that you would not argue with it is it is plain truth so but the since the people are caught up in the climate movement it's hard for for them to uh, digest this uh, but it, if you have an open mind uh, it shouldn't be hard to understand this uh we, we were again we were uh, talking i want to point people to co2coalition.org uh, co2coalition.org uh, their um uh research associate is uh, vijay jayaraj and he has um written a piece over townhall.com um the end of this piece, you've talked about, walk through that. All in all, when it comes to food supplies, the world should be thankful for modern warming and the relative abundance of CO2 and elixir for plants, as well as for the new crop varieties and agricultural technologies. It, so what's the balance, Vijay, especially maybe in the in India and the, and the rest of the world? I know you, you, stu- you studied over in, in England, too, and have a, have a perspective also across the globe more maybe than some um, – of the emerging technologies for food production. It, there's been a sort of uh, uh, an ebb and flow in America where we get GMOs, you know, genetically modified uh, uh, crops worry us and all this kind of stuff. What's the reality of of not I'm not talking about um, uh, I'm talking about technologies that will deliver protein and, and food to us and, and change everything. Yeah, I mean, uh, the viewpoints on this matter is quite uh diverse yeah diverse yeah yeah, yeah, diverse and uh so uh talking from my point of view uh i would like to point out a person named norman borlock so he was an american uh from the u.s uh in early in his career um after his phd he decided to work on uh, crop varieties that could withstand harsh environmental conditions and that's when he began his trials in mexico and this was the beginning of the green revolution the global green revolution where his crop varieties that were uh, carefully cross uh, bred uh, uh, turned out to be varieties that could withstand uh, drought uh, can uh, ward off uh, pestilences and uh, proved uh, to be the most successful uh, food crop varieties that would go on to uh, 
end famine in multiple asian countries and in africa and in latin america so if you look at what he did uh, is nothing uh, different from what was happening in human history so humans uh, carefully selected different crop varieties and whichever traits they preferred to be passed on to the next generation uh, they chose those plants to be cr- crossbred and uh, norman borlock did the same and now what's happening in our labs is that uh, this has been expedited uh, so when we talk about genetically modified or, or organisms in this case gen- genetically modified food crops uh, scientists are able to do this process much quicker in a lab where they select the gene uh for a particular trait and uh, they are able to produce crop varieties for instance the wheat variety uh, that has been developed uh, during the past uh, one decade uh, uh, it can withstand 35 to 40 degree celsius which is 95 to 104 fahrenheit and that is phenomenal uh, because uh, when we are talking about climate change and uh, the un says the worst it can get is is anywhere between 2 to 5 degrees and these crop uh, wheat varieties can very well withstand and scientists now are uh, doing the same with other key food crops such as rice maize and so on so when it comes to gmo uh, it's a question of how people look at it and uh, uh, and also like what are the sources that they are su- subscribing to it would be easier for me to just look at the publications that are highly skeptical of gmos impact on human health and uh, just uh, you know get lost in that but the reality is that uh, gmo crops are approved by top medical and food agencies in us canada australia china uh, bangladesh and multiple african nations so this is not something that is uh, you know specific to a certain country it has been well researched and studied and there are hundreds of nobel uh, prize winning scientists who have who have uh, you know together written statements and signed a letter saying that gmos are critical in meeting the global food security and majority of the maize that is being consumed in us right now are gmo Hmm. so many countries including mine uh, have not approved them yet uh, but yeah as i said it's a challenging topic um a, 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 can you say the name of that american at the beginning of that answer you were talking about an american who was uh, and then went to mexico to do testing what what can you repeat that name please yeah uh, his name is norman borlog n o r m a n b o r l a u g Okay, so people can yep, look yep, that yep, up. Yeah. Yep. Good. Okay. Great. Well, listen. Thank you for first of all. Thank you for uh, being out there uh, and uh, writing uh, townhall. dot com again. Our guest VJ uh, Jayaraj, uh, research associate at the CO two Coalition. His piece is up over at townhall. dot com. I'll put a link to a technology and an optic uh, and an, excuse me, technology and an optimal climate are feeding the world. Uh, a very helpful piece. And thank you for spending some time explaining it to us and talking it through. So we appreciate it, VJ. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. All right, we will take a break and we will come back and I'll put all those links up on social media. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative perspective since 1983, continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. And now from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. 
The promoters of what is mistakenly called free trade often cite Ronald Reagan as authority, claiming he was a believer and advocate of free trade. That's not true. Reagan's economic and trade policies were grounded in the belief that his number one task was to win the Cold War and defeat the evil empire, so his trade policy was subordinated to that goal. Reagan's principal policy to bring about the Soviet Union collapse was his effort to try to spin the Soviet Union into the ground through an unprecedented American military buildup while denying the Soviets access to Western technology and capital that could have helped them militarily and economically. The Soviet economy was becoming less and less productive and lagged badly in the technologies that were so critical for military superiority. Reagan intensified the Soviet predicament in three ways. First, he imposed very tight Western restrictions on technology transfers to the Soviet bloc. Second, he blocked Soviet access to Western capital wherever he could. Third, and most important, he launched a big technology-led American military buildup with which the Soviet Union was unable to compete. Regrettably, our later presidents have not followed the Reagan policy in dealings with China, which is using the cash it gets from selling us cheap goods to build up the most modern and threatening military establishment in the world. Our government has done nothing to stop the export of our best technology to China, which regularly engages in predatory trade practices such as currency manipulation, government subsidies to Chinese manufacturers, allowing communist China to force American companies to give China their patents and trade secrets, dumping their products below cost, and outright theft of our patents and industrial know-how. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. As leader of the free world, America has a responsibility to stay strong in economics, industry, morality, and military capability. Never hesitating to say, America first. At phyllisschlafly.com, you'll see why the best foreign policy begins with a strong America. Join the conversation at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, wrapping things up today, uh, we will, um, let's see here. What did I want to tell you? Let me look for my notes. Oh, uh, great. We got a, I got a great interview uh, coming up this week. Um, I think it'll be tomorrow. Glenn Beaton. Glenn Beaton is an author, Post Hill Press author, who is um, uh, from Aspen, Colorado. And he started to, um, he started to, uh, write a, he wrote a column. Actually, no, it didn't start. He wrote a column for seven years, uh, seven years. And, um, after seven years, he got fired on, on, uh, Christmas Eve because he was basically the whole time he was conservative and he got really popular and it made him crazy. And I, he wrote a book. It's, it's phenomenal. It's really, really interesting. Um, and, uh, and very, uh, very, um, funny and, po- uh, and poignant at the same time. All right. I know what I wanted to finish up on. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to preview this for you. The ACLU. The ACLU has gotten completely out of control. The ACLU, which used to sort of fight for civil liberties, now they're on the side, basically, 
of any chance they can get to be for the kid against their parents. That parents shouldn't know if you have an abortion. Parents shouldn't you know if you want to transition to another gender, another sex. And the ACLU in Rhode Island, in this case, uh, uh, jumped in and tried to say a parent shouldn't need shouldn't get to know. Parents should not get to know. They should be blocked from knowing about this transgender training. I tell you, one of the great um, uh, rifts that is happening in the country, and it's being done intentionally, is the idea, the idea of uh, uh, of separating the kids from their parents. It's very common. It's a strategy, and it's very effective. And you see it on abortion. You see it on COVID. And they're and the goal is to get you away from your because they're going to educate you, and the education is going to be what they want. It's a it's a real problem. All right, so that's something we got to watch. All right, uh, that's all I got today. Thank you, Noah Dingley, our great producer. Thank you to Ryan Hyde, associate producer. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com. Go to at Eagle Ed Martin on Twitter, Ed Martin Live on Facebook. All those places you can find these interviews and more. Support the people who come on. At least check them out. If you uh, buy their books or uh, pay attention to them, that is always helpful. And we will be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you then. America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.